Welcome to the PapaCast. Interviews in the world of sports. Now here's your host, Bob Papa. Welcome to another edition of the PapaCast. So glad you could join us. You know, we're in March now, and you start getting that feeling. Baseball is in the air, spring training in full swing, and a lot of things going on in Major League Baseball. So we figured, who better to talk about it? Then Joel Sherman, who has been covering Major League Baseball and the New York baseball scene as an MLB insider for the New York Post, and he takes a couple minutes to join us here on the podcast. Joel, thank you so much for joining us. How's everything going? Fine, Bob. Thanks for having me on. Great to have you on as well. And I guess the first stop is going to be the 30-game suspension that Major League Baseball handed down to Araldis Chapman. You wrote a very compelling story in the New York Post, a column about sort of this uh, situation where it's 30 days and the commissioner sets this penalty, and it's one of these deals where it's kind of a win-win-lose-lose situation? Yeah, I mean, I think, Bob, we're familiar in both sports and real life that true negotiations, everybody doesn't get everything, but everybody gets enough to be able to walk away and say they won the negotiation. And if you think of this, I mean, I think the big winner here is the commissioner. He was given these kind of unfettered powers in the area of domestic abuse. And he, this is the first one he's actually making some kind of ruling on because he kind of kicked the can down the road with Jose Reyes until his trial is either, you know, complete, adjudicated in some way. So this was the first one he was going to do a suspension on. And ultimately, there were no charges brought on what happened on October 30th in Davie, Florida, in uh, Chapman's home. But he, something happened. And so, you know, you, ha- you want to make a statement. And, you know, quite frankly, part of the backdrop here is that Roger Goodell did not handle these issues well in his initial forays with someone like Ray Rice. And when you're the commissioner, you not only have to do something that you could defend legally, you're making a statement to your, you know, your buying public about what you will tolerate and what you can't. And without, a, without charges, he was able to set the precedent here that he can suspend somebody for 30 games, which some people might say isn't much. On the other hand, in the first 30 games of last year, Andrew Miller, who was the Yankee closer last year, appeared in 15 of them and got 13 saves, which was a big chunk of his season. And so there's that. Um, the Players Association had to walk that fine line. They gave the commissioner these rights because they recognized what a major issue um, domestic abuse has become in our society and that there really has to be almost a zero tolerance for this. And yet at the same time, they have to defend the members of the association, and by Chapman agreeing not to uh, protest this, not to go to a grievance, they don't have to publicly stand up for someone who might have been a domestic abuser. Chapman gets 30 games. It's a lot, but if it had been more than about 45 games, he would have lost the service time to be a free agent at the end of the year, and who knows what else comes out at a hearing that he might not want to be public here. And lastly, the Yankees just get some level of clarity. Hey, we know we're getting the guy back on May 9th. It is May 9th. Even if there's rainouts, it's 30 scheduled games, so he would come back then. Uh, it's not perfect, of course, because they would love to have him from the outset. But when the Yankees acquired him, Bob, 
they knew he would serve some kind of suspension, and at least now they have clarity about how long he'll be out and when he'll be back. So now, juxtaposed with the Reyes situation here, um, depending on how that all kind of turns out, I mean, he could be facing a much longer suspension, in your opinion? Oh, I think he's going to get a substantial penalty here. If you got 30 games without charges brought, what happens when there's charges brought a trial? But remember, some of this could just be pyrrhic, Bob. If you think about it, Jose Reyes is going to be on trial. If he ends up getting jail time, then, you know, if he's in jail, you know, MLB could say, oh, he's suspended a year. Well, would it really matter? He's in prison. So, you know, the next important moment is a trial is supposed to begin April 4th in Hawaii, and we'll see, do they come to some kind of plea agreement before then, which would then, like, throw it back onto uh, the commissioner to decide what to do. Right now, what all the parties, Reyes, the Colorado Rockies, the Players Association, and the commissioner's office have decided to do is he's going to stay away with pay, you know, and that's probably in the best interest of all of those parties. And then the next move is, does this actually go to trial? Is he found guilty or not? And then it will be in the commissioner's court again. All right, let's get uh, out of the courtroom in the suspension area, and let's uh, let's start with a little Major League Baseball overall. How strong is this movement to include the designated yeah. in the National League, in your opinion? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that it's definitely not going to be decided in this collective bargaining agreement, which is kind of beginning right now. It, uh you know, it, it ends, the, uh, the last one ends, I think it's the last day of November. So, you know, that, that's what the, uh, the uh, period is to negotiate something. Obviously, the Players Association would love to see a DH added. I don't know if everyone knows this, but the highest paid position by average on the field is designated hitter. So it just makes sense. They would like more designated hitters, and that would be 15 more if you brought the National League into it. And if you notice, the teams in the National League who have pushed the hardest for it, a team like the Chicago Cubs, who have Kyle Schwaber, who might not be a left fielder, might not be a catcher, but everyone knows is a heck of a hitter, and the Cubs would like to have him for the next six to ten years. And, you know, everyone pushes their own agenda. The Cardinals have pushed on it. They're a bigger market team in a division that has teams like the Reds and Brewers, so they'd be able to afford it. But I think this commissioner... You know, Bob, when you and I grew up, there were clear distinctions between the American League and National League, notably that the American League and National League never played before the World Series. Now that they play every day, some teams play from the National League against the American League every day, those distinctions have gone away. What distinct, the distinction for the two leagues is the DH. I think that the commissioner likes that it's kind of an argument. I think the commissioner likes that there's two different styles of baseball. To me, the problem becomes when you play these interleague games, one league is clearly set up their team to not hit pitchers and to use a player like David Ortiz or Alex Rodriguez. And for the games, the nine or ten games they play in the National League Park during the season, those guys either have to play positions they haven't played or not play and become pinch hitters. And just the other technical thing, if you look what the really long-term contracts have been 
in the major leagues for position players. They're almost all in the American League. You know, 10-year contract for Robinson Cano, 10-year contract for Alex Rodriguez, 10-year contract for Albert Pujols, 9-year contract for Prince Fielder. Those are all American League contracts because those teams know that at the end of those contracts, like if the guys lose their ability to play the field, they could always go and become the DH. It kind of keeps National League teams from doing those contracts. So that's kind of good news, bad news. In general, those contracts haven't worked, so they don't have to worry about doing those. On the other hand, you know, if the Cardinals really wanted to sign Albert Pujols long-term and keep him in one place the whole time, it becomes more difficult to keep a player in the National League past his 35th and certainly past his 40th birthday. Are you in favor of the DH in the NL? Where do you, where do you sit on this fence? Yeah, so I think pragmatically, the DH is never going away. I know that we're going to do this traditionalist thing. We like the game better. It's chess, not checkers in the National League. But the union, under no circumstances, because of what I mentioned before, which is that just it's the highest paid per average position on the field, they're never negotiating it out. So the question always is going to be, is the NL adopting it or not? That's the only move here. It's, not the, it's never going away in the American League. And I think it would be better if we just got to the point where the whole sport was playing a similar way because it does feel when these games are played like a distinct advantage. You know, like the Mets play against a team in the American League for, you know, like obviously you don't want to hit your pitchers, but if you're going to hit your pitchers, you just assume those pitchers be Jake DeGrom and Noah Syndergaard and Matt Harvey, you know, guys who could actually handle a bat a little, Steve Matz. You know, and that's a big advantage against an American League team where the guy will come to the plate who probably hasn't hit in quite a while. Do you risk some level of injury asking people to do what they're not used to? We saw Chin Ming Wang essentially lose his career running the bases against the Astros. So I, I just pragmatically, I would just like to see it adopted all around. I don't think it's as huge an issue as, as many think, but if I, if I were the overlord of baseball, I would just go ahead and put it in both leagues. You know, I mean, I, as full disclosure here, I mean, I grew up an American League fan, so I've always liked the DH. Um, you know, this whole thing with people, you know, hitting you with, yeah, but it takes away from the strategy and the double switch. What they never talk about is how about the previous four or five innings that can be downright boring because they pitch around the number eight hitter to get to the number nine hitter and a potential rally of first and third with two men out just comes to a grinding halt because four pitches and the inning's over. That's boring. Yeah, I mean, uh, as somebody who spends about half his time in the National League parks and half his time in the American League parks, you can see the difference between pitching in the leagues is like it's not only pitching around the eighth place hitter but you know you could have such an easier inning seven eight and nine you know they, they are generally weaker hitters at seven and eight and then all of a sudden you know you're just don't let the lineup turn over with the pitcher it's, it's a different game uh... and as far as the strategy i would say this and it's something buck showalter has talked about a lot probably the most important strategy a manager is invested with is when do you take your starting pitcher out of the game? And in some ways, the DH clouds that and makes it a more difficult decision. You know, you have this natural, easy, I'll just pinch hit for the guy down by a run in the sixth inning in a tie game. But when your starting pitcher is losing 2-1 to one in the American League, are you, you know, like, and you begin to see signs of tiring, 
now it's a tougher deal because there's not an obvious pinch hit situation. It's your ace. Are you going to, like, really annoy him by taking him out earlier? So there is some real strategy around the biggest decision in the game, which is when do you take your starting pitcher out or not? Right, and, you, and sometimes in the National League you're just forced to do it because you've got a rally going and you've got to pinch hit even though the guy's pitching lights out. Uh, and to me, look, I, I think from a business standpoint, right, I mean, the attention span of everybody has gotten shorter. Long gone are the days of going to a baseball game, and in between innings they play the organ, and you can talk about it and you keep score. I mean, it's about fantasy sports, whether it's football, basketball, baseball, you name it. The DH keeps stars in the game. It keeps big-name players in the game for a long time. There's more offense. There's more scoring. And for the younger fan, they want to see that. They, 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 the attention span is not for a 3-1 to one game. It's for, I think, the ideal score probably, right, is a, a 5-4 game or a 6-5 game with a home run here and guys running the bases. So I would think from a business model, it would help baseball even more if they added the DH to the NL. I, I think clearly, you know, depending on what you think of players like this, if there is no DH, the careers of David Ortiz and Alex Rodriguez are probably over, uh, over a couple of years ago. Uh, at some point, it will be over for Albert Pujols when he no longer could even play first base. And do you, would you like to see those guys stick around and bat three or four times I think it's more interesting to have recognizable stars continue to do at least what they do well. If we're, you know, something else we were brainwashed about, which may or may not be true, is the hardest thing in sports to do is hit a baseball consistently, hit a round ball with a round bat that's coming in very fast and moving in different directions. And the people who do that well, if that's just the one thing they do well, I would rather see them have an outlet to continue to play in the sport than not have an outlet. Joel, you've been covering baseball for a long time, and you've, you've had a front-row seat for some incredible moments in baseball history. From a, from a standpoint of sort of amazement, have you ever seen sort of this wild arc that A-Rod's career has taken from being the young, you know, hot prodigy to the, the high-priced player to him putting his foot in his mouth constantly when it came to the PEDs and everything else, and all of a sudden – it circled back to with the suspensions and everything else where the guy now seems beloved. Yeah, so without drawing too large a parallel, but to be honest, it's a parallel I've made in the post and on MLB Network, is I do think that if, if you could make a modern Greek tragedy... <laughs> Uh, something Shakespearean even, you'd have this guy, right? I mean, in some ways, uh, Achilles literally has his heel in myth. You know, if Alex did not have the bundle of insecurity and ego and greed that has pretty much fueled his decision-making and gotten into his brain, I mean, if you watch him play baseball in his prime, I mean, he's almost a perfect player. I think he would have hit... Like, if his brain didn't get in the way and his personality didn't get in the way, with or without drugs, I think the guy would have hit 800, 900 homers. I mean, he is – I tell a story all the time. When he came to the Yankees in 2004, he had never played third base, and, of course, he agrees to go play third base because Derek Jeter is the shortstop, and he wants out of Texas, and he wants out so badly that he's willing to move off the shortstop, though you could argue he's in the midst of the greatest shortstop career in history, and obviously this is before PEDs become uh, you know, part of the focus about him. 
And I very quietly every morning would kind of go to the backfield and watch Alex Rodriguez learn to play third base. And so part of my image of Alex Rodriguez with all the good, the bad, whatever, is just like the combination of hard work, 7.30 in the morning, two hours before the original work, the actual workout, going through the business of learning third base because it meant so much to him to, A, never embarrass himself on the field, but learn how to do this at a high level. And then watching what a gifted athlete he was, how nimble, you know, for a six foot four guy with a big frame, he was around third base, and what a powerful arm he had. And, you know, there was a real majesty to the athlete. And, like, when he didn't know people were watching, where he wasn't trying to, you know, do the Alex Rodriguez, you know, head whatever and make eye contact with you, like, he had no idea I was there, you got a front row seat of what could be. And it's kind of, I think, Greek tragedy that, that all this stuff, you know, I never, Bob, I never forgive kind of the taking of PEDs, but I understand it within the context of stuff. You know, I do believe the Barry Bonds story, which is until 1998, which is he's got three gold gloves and I think, I mean, three MVPs and eight gold gloves at that point, and he's one of the you know, greatest left fielders of all time. He's by far the best all-around player in baseball, and everyone's into the freak show of McGuire and Sosa, and he's like, wait a second, all the love and money are going to these guys? The hell with it. I'm, I'm the best player in baseball by a lot. Nobody even knows who I am. I understand the decision-making. You know, Alex Rodriguez is like, if I don't do this, am I going to fall behind? I want, I do, I'm greedy. I want to be the highest-paid player ever. I want to break the home run record. Do I have to do this stuff to do it? Again, do you forgive? No, but I understand the frailty that moved players to do things. Speaking of the Yankees, um, obviously this is a, a team that relied on their bullpen. What's your assessment of this of this rotation, and is it enough to carry them through this season? Well, I think there's a very modern thing in baseball, Bob. For most of history with divisions, even if we just want to go back to 1969 when division play really began, there was very clear understanding of who the haves and have-nots were before a season began. And I would dare say, if you took the AL East and AL Central this year in particular, you put the teams in a bag and shook them up, I think those divisions can finish 1-5 to five or 5-1. to one. I think if you played the season 100 times, every team in the AL East would win it at least 12 to 15 times. And then, you know, like some of the randomness would come out. Like, you know, does Boston actually have the most talent? Maybe they'd win it 30 times or 28 times. But I could make a compelling case where I don't have to stretch too far how all five teams in the division win. And I could do that for the Yankees. And one of the strongest ways I could do that for the Yankees is you don't even have to tell me which three guys but any of the three, any three guys in what we expect to be their five-man rotation to open the season makes 30 starts and throws 200 innings, I almost don't see how the Yankees wouldn't be a really good team. Because the big question about them is, are they just going to get bulk innings from the best of their starting pitchers? If they do, they've got a very good lineup. Their defense is so much improved from even two years ago. They've put just more athletes on the field. You know, we saw this, what it meant to have, like, D.D. Gregorius, a great fielding shortstop on the field. There's a suspicion that Castro is going to be a pretty high-level second baseman. I think people will be pleasantly surprised at what a good defender Aaron Hicks is when he gets into games. So I think it's just going to be, that's going to be better. And I think they'll 
hit home runs, especially at home, enough to be among the top four or five run-scoring teams in the sport. And so, you know, if you just tell me that they get good innings, not great innings, good innings and bulk innings from some significant part of what we expect to be their starting five, I think they have a good year. But there's so many red flags there that I could see enough of it breaking down, and this is the year that everything goes wrong, and instead of winning 85 games, they win 75 games. On the flip side, you go across town to the Mets, and you don't have to worry about bulk innings. You're getting quality innings with that starting rotation. Do they have enough in the bullpen, in your opinion, though, to really make this a special year? Um, It's a good question, Bob. If I were kind of guessing at what their July, late July trade looks like, my suspicion is it's going to end up being for a very good relief pitcher, on a team we suspect to be an also-ran, you know, Jake McGee from Colorado. I personally think the Angels are going to have a rough year. Joe Smith or Houston Street from the Angels, that kind of player. And so, uh, you know, that's the big question. But I will say this. We've gone a long time with the Mets where when you, you know, this is the time of hope and optimism, where when you're sitting in spring training, you're trying to figure out ways for them to be good. And the great backhanded compliment to the Mets is now we're trying to figure out ways where they wouldn't be good because you know what? They're good. You know, that rotation, if it stays healthy, always a big if, but if it stays healthy, it's almost impossible to have that level of talent and not be a well above average team. And I do think that we can expect their offense to look a lot more like the second-half offense of last year than the first half, not only because Suspedis is back, but because the Mets got the memo about needing depth. I mean, the Suspedis trade was very important, but so was Kelly Johnson and Juan Uribe. They were giving away too many at-bats to the Eric Campbells and the Daryl Cicciolini's and the Johnny Munells, guys who really didn't belong in the major leagues and were making up their bench. Now part of their bench will be guys like Wilma Flores and Ruben Tejada, who were starters for a lot of the season for a National League champion, right? Diaza, Juan Lagares. It is a good, deep team now. And I do expect that with full seasons, if they could give them full seasons, guys like Michael Conforto and Travis Darnot are above to well above average producers at their positions. You mentioned Ioannis Cespedes. Obviously, he's back and... Man, is he having fun in spring training. I, I think it's it's kind of neat because the Yankees always seem to have the circus. And Cespedes has brought some real fun to the Mets. In your opinion, is it too much right now? Or is it, hey, look, this is the start of spring training and the guy can play and that's the bottom line? Yeah, I'm going to – he taught me so much about the game, you know, because when I was on the Yankee beat, he was the manager a lot early on. And I'm going to end up quoting Buck Showalter again. And one of the things Bucks always said is winning is not the hardest thing in baseball. Winning year after year is the hardest thing because, you know, the other teams are now gunning for you. And also, what are the priorities on your team? You know, do people suddenly say, eh, you know, now I've got to go get mine? Uh, does, does winning go to your head? It's actually, I know that there's been this thing about money, money, money when people talk about the Yankees over the last quarter century. But going a quarter of a century 
where you never have a losing record and you're either in the playoffs or in the discussion for the playoffs when the season turns past September 1st for, for a quarter century in a row is just spectacular. I don't know that an all-star team would do that every year. And so now we're going to see the Mets become the hunted a little bit. They're not sneaking up on anybody. You show up with Noah Syndergaard, Matt Harvey, Jake DeGrom, you are not sneaking up on anybody. And so there will be this question between being loose and feeling too high a level of accomplishment already. And, Bob, the only way we can know this for sure is what happens moving forward. I mean, I could just point this out, and obviously you're way more intimate with this than me, is, you know, the Giants have won a couple of Super Bowls in the last 10 years, and their follow-up teams have not looked like those teams and have not made the playoffs even, I think, in those seasons. And the idea that there's, this is like Duke in the NCAA tournament, that the Mets are somehow instantly getting invited to the tournament, you know, you've got to win over 162 games. I suspect they're going to, but I do think there's a difference between who they were personality-wise in the perception of themselves and everyone else last year and who they are this year, and let's see how they handle success. Yeah, it kind of goes to the statement of uneasy is the head that wears the crown. I mean, and you're right. They're not last year. I mean, they got on fire in the second half of the year, and they had this run, and they tapped into that National League spirit that exists in New York, and you know it was fun to see the Mets successful again. But now you're right. Now they've got to carry this day in and day out. And that, and 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 you having been around the Yankees and around Major League Baseball, and what those Yankee teams were able to accomplish, that's a heavy burden when you go day in and day out, and every game suddenly is meaningful, not just within the clubhouse but it becomes meaningful within the city, within the media, and even on a national scale, that adds a whole different element and challenge to a team's objective, doesn't it? It does. And, and, and Bob, again, you know, I was impressed all those years by the Yankees, and the Mets have kind of backed themselves into a Yankee corner. Because right now, what they're pretty much saying is, you know, it's not just about winning now. Like, like their success this year, because they went all the way to the World Series last year, is a championship. And I thought Andrew Friedman, who runs baseball operations for the Dodgers, had a great quote during the offseason. You know, he's had a team that had nearly a $300 million payroll last year. It was the largest payroll by far, even more than, way more than anything the Yankees had ever spent. And, you know, the team lost to the Mets in the Division Series in five games and hasn't won a World Series since 1988. And, you know, like they didn't re-sign Zach Greinke this offseason and he went to another team in the Division. And essentially a reporter asked him, like, like, is it World Series or bust? And he said, I just can't live in a world where one team had a great year and 29 did not. He said, you know, there's got to be some joy along the way, winning big series in San Francisco, winning your division, winning rounds of the playoffs, having the best record in the league. If it just comes down to the Mets either get a parade or this is a lousy season, think about what they begin, the pressure they begin this season with, which, you know, to some degrees maybe you could say the Royals began it last year with that. They lost the World Series in seven games the previous season and won last year, but the history of the game is not lose the World Series, come back and win the World Series. You know, it's happened, but it doesn't happen a heck of a lot. And so, you know, the Mets have to find joy in the journey. And by the way, they won't. But my advice to their fans is enjoy the journey. 
you know, I suspect the Mets are going to be good. I suspect they're going to have one of the more unique rotations in the history of the whole game. There's got to be some fun April to September. If all you're waiting for is a parade, then what happened to the Yankees over the last, like, five to eight years where there was this joylessness from April to October, no matter how many games, April to September, no matter how many games they won, and then it was, uh, they had a terrible season. They only made the ALCS. All right, I guess so. Like, if that's it, if it's a bad season making the ALCS, then, you know, I, I don't know what to say. Joel, great stuff. I mean, really fantastic insights into what's happening in Major League Baseball and everything that's going on. I encourage fans via Twitter to follow Joel at Joel Sherman one. You can read him in the New York Post online, MLB Network Insider. Joel, we appreciate you uh, spending some time and, and sharing your insights with our audience. Great stuff as always. Bob, it was my pleasure. Thank you very much. Joel Sherman joining us on this edition of the Papacast.